Welcome to the PX11 September edition of Planning Exchange, and thank you to all of our listeners who've tuned in so far. My name is Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we have a very special guest, Melanie Lowe, here to talk about an issue that's very close to my heart, which is public health and its relationship with urban environments. Mel, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you mind giving a brief introduction of your background, etc.? Thanks, Jess, and thanks, Peter. Um, so, yes, I am a PhD student and research assistant at the Macaque Vic Health Community Wellbeing Unit uh, within Melbourne University's School of Population and Global Health. Uh, and I'm part of a team there um, looking at place, health and livability. And broadly, my research interest is at that intersection between planning and public health, looking at how to plan um, urban environments that support the social determinants of health. So I come from a, a public health background, and so that's certainly the angle at which I uh, have come to planning more mm -hmm. recently. So did you do um, undergrad in public health? No, actually no. My, my, my first degree was in physiotherapy, so oh. I've moved a fair way from those original days, uh, then became uh, interested in public health, did a Master of Public Health, uh, and through that have now got interested in, in planning. Oh, that's an interesting um, stepping stone. Yeah, yeah yes. Mm. And how did you initially become interested in healthy communities? Well, I'd, I'd say uh, it was, it was you know, certainly coming from the public health background, as I've just said, and when I was studying a Master of Public Health, uh, it's, no, it, it's an opportunity to explore all the range of determinants of, of health, um, the individual and collective level. And uh, I became interested in the, in the impact of the built environment on health, so the built environment as a determinant um, of people's behaviours as well as health outcomes. And it was probably um, through delving a little, little deeper um, through a research project uh, that I realised that, you know, with the majority of the world's population now living in cities, and certainly the majority of Australia's population living in our major cities, um, the urban environment has a huge impact and so changes to the urban environment could have widespread population health benefits. Um, so it was probably it was probably through that. So just touching on the determinants of health, they're generally described as being income, social status, education, physical environment, etc. Where does the built environment actually come into play? So in that list it's certainly in the physical environment. Yeah. So all of those things are really important uh, as determinants of um, health behaviours and health outcomes. The, the built environment uh, is, is one of those, and so we know that uh, your individual characteristics, income, education, employment level, your overall socioeconomic status is, is a, a key contributor to health outcomes, um, and we actually know that there's a social gradient in health, so as you move up the socioeconomic step, um, your health outcomes are, are more likely to be better. Uh, and But independent of those things, we also know that where you live is important, so that includes urban environments. Uh, and certainly some of the geographic health inequities we see between different regions are partly determined by the nature of those environments. Does I say as well that um, your determinants of health are really um, prescribed at birth as well? Yeah, so mm. so there are there are you know determinants that you kind of inherit intergenerationally yeah. from parents, um, and also your genetic characteristics mm. um, and you know your personal characteristics and exposures. Uh, so determinants come from that very personal level, uh, right through to the broader, um, as I've mentioned, the built environment, um, but also the social, economic, and political uh, environment as well that in which you know a child is born into. Mm. So, so it's the old nature and nurture. There's a combination of both, yeah? Yes, indeed. So, you know, both are, both are important um, and certainly there's a lot of research into all, all of these aspects, yeah. Mm. 
Now, physical inactivity is second only to smoking in terms of death and disability, uh, in terms of you know, those causes. Is there a correlation between physical inactivity and urban form? Absolutely. This is, um, in terms of the relationship between urban design and health, some of the um, strongest associations we're finding is, is in the area of physical activity. Uh, but compared to uh, sort of lower density sprawling type development, higher density development with mixture of land uses, grid-based street networks, uh, and obviously that um, high quality walking and cycling infrastructure, as well as public transport nearby, they're the sorts of environments that we know encourage physical activity in the neighbourhoods, particularly walking for transport. Mm. Uh, there's a good evidence base for that. Um, in terms of recreational uh, physical activity, the nature of public open space and streets is important. So um, if you have attractive and accessible and safe streets and public open spaces, that encourages adults to be more physically active in their recreation time. For children, it's about having those recreational opportunities in the neighbourhood as well. Um, so people can, so children can, children and adolescents can be active after school. But also the in-school environment is important um, for for physical activity for, for children. What about the new communities out on the fringe? Do you think they're designed adequately to promote physical activity, or do you think there's um, elements that could be improved to assist with that? Certainly uh, some of the developments that we're seeing, um, the density is uh, at a lower level than would be ideal to support that mixture of land uses um, and uh, create those convenient distances between homes and those shop services and, and daily activities that people need to access. Uh, so density is probably one of the, the key concerns um, and there's a lot of discussion in the literature about you know, what that ideal density might be. But um, that's sort of a foundation, I guess, for walkable and cyclable neighbourhoods. And then, as I've said, the mixture of land uses. Sometimes in our new neighbourhoods, uh, we're getting housing en masse, uh, but there is a delay in the provision of infra infrastructure and services, um, often over many years. And without those nearby destinations to uh, walk or cycle to, uh, let alone public transport, which is often, again, missing um, or delayed, uh, there isn't those opportunities to, to reach destinations on foot or by bike. Yeah, I guess that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because if, you, if you're going to move out to these places, often you don't want to live in an apartment or you don't want to live in a high-density situation. So it's sort of chicken and egg situation, really, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's, you know, we know that there is a, a demand yeah. for, for that type of development. I think it's about... Um, education of the community about some of the, the um, risks and, and benefits of the different lifestyles. Um, I think, you know, the Australian dream is still very much to live uh, in a detached dwelling um, and, and you know, that may be possible for um, a whole range of people, but that perhaps there is, um, a, needs to be a discussion about other types of development which may, that might be better for supporting um, physical activity and other health behaviours. Mel, how advanced are the science, the techniques in terms of calculating health outcomes uh, given a city development model? Um, is there a formula? Can you speak to some data analytics fairly briefly? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say that... Um I'm aware of any particular formula that sort of says this is the ideal city, build it, or this is the ideal development, build it. We're certainly getting a growing evidence base around certain features of the built environment, and I've touched on some of those already. Um, and I guess then it's also about uh, looking at the local context, uh, the, the needs of the population, 
are important as well as um, you know things like topography and you know, the natural landscape and those sorts of things as well. So there's no one size fit all um, model. The evidence is is building around those features. We're also developing increasingly indicators which can be used to sort of um, measure and compare different areas. So we can see what's better in one area and what's uh, maybe detracting from another area. Um, and what's most useful is those indicators when they can compare two local areas, not whole cities, because that sort of lumps everyone mm. in together. But they, when you can compare different neighbourhoods, um, that, that can be quite useful, I think, for, for planning decision-making. And we're also seeing increasingly as the evidence gets better and we can draw more causal links between this urban feature and, and that um, health outcome or health behaviour, um, we're seeing that we, there is some predictive modelling going on where perhaps there's tools being developed where you could say, oh, if we increase the density by X amount or if we put in a new footpath, mm-hmm. what would that do to the, uh, the characteristics of that neighbourhood in terms of, of behaviours and, and then health outcomes? I suppose it depends on the, the quality of the urban design that goes in. It's not just mm-hmm. density, is it? I mean... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems um, it seems like such an obvious relationship, I think, urban design, um, built form and, and public health. Um, why do you think it's taken so long to actually highlight this issue? I mean, I know from the people that I talk to, people go, oh, what do you mean? How does planning actually relate to public health? It has no relationship. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you're touching it there on the fact that there has perhaps been a, a recent upsurge in certain mm. sections of the planning community, a recent upsurge of interest in, in planning and health, which is great to see. And mm. I think um, the recognition of the links, particularly between chronic disease um, and built environment, uh, there's a, a, a growing interest in, in that area. But there has been um, a long history of connection between planning and public health, despite what we, we might think. Yeah. So, you know, you look back onto the early industrialising European cities and planning, public health and engineering, civil engineering work together mm. to improve sanitation, housing and, and separate those dirty industrial land uses from residential areas. Mm. And that had a huge uh, public health impact in those times. Yeah. Then with the continued separation of land uses uh, and then the growing extent of the suburb, um, particularly in the post-war era with the rise of the car, um, there was perhaps uh, an intention to create the sort of garden city um, but that has had uh, negative, unintended negative consequences for health. And I think that that growing link between health and chronic disease is what we're now seeing a growing interest in. But we also know that, you know, there's there's some, you know, 2 billion people still living without adequate sanitation, mm-hmm. um, some 2 billion people um, at risk or living in slum-like conditions in the developing world. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's those connections between the built environment and health that, you know, we realise back in... Mm. the early industrialising times in Western countries, um, some of those issues still exist uh, overseas. Well, Mel, uh, I, I read uh, in Beijing, living in Beijing is the equivalent of smoking two packets of cigarettes a day, just breathing in the air every every day there. Mm. That's how bad it is. But just taking you back to a point, you've, you mentioned the post-war planning principles about mm. the car-based, the segregation of land uses. Mm. Uh, are you saying that that's counterproductive to good health outcomes? Some of those principles, um, as I've mentioned, uh, there is an indication that you know that, that they do not necessarily um, support health and, and um, health behaviours and health outcomes. Uh, just to be clear, you know the post-war era um, developed a lot of uh, in Australia what we now call our middle suburbs, mm-hmm. and so some of those areas are actually now very well established, and I would say actually do have you know good 
public open space. They have public transport lines through them. Um, some of the particular concerns um, for us in terms of research is those newer communities, which are based on similar principles, but because they're, they're brand new um, and lack some of that infrastructure and services and they lack the public transport, they're sort of a, a little bit of a different... Mm-hmm. A different um, Shouldn't they be the issue. best because of what we know now, though? Y- yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> you'd hope so that eventually we're, you know, we're going to use the evidence that I've been talking about to create, you know, great new communities. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that because it's expensive and difficult to retrofit communities. I just think what we're seeing at the moment is uh, perhaps some of these principles of healthy urban design are not necessarily being translated into um, practice, into planning practice. Um, and so that's why we're seeing some problematic new developments. Do you think we put too much blame on city form? After all, most of our post-war suburbs actually fulfil the garden suburb ideal with lots of private open space and community areas. What about societal change that might contribute to suboptimal public health outcomes? Yeah, and, and so, you know, <laughs> absolutely. So mm. th- there's all sorts of um, changes that have happened um, over time that, that um, you know, shape uh, again, you know, the way people behave um, and certain health risk factors. But I would say that, you know, coming back again to the fact that the built environment is in the mix mm-hmm. um, because it not only has that independent uh, impact on your daily life where mm-hmm. you live, but also it has that impact on some of the opportunities you have. So, you know, where you live, might there might be certain opportunities for education and employment mm-hmm. um, which actually sort of shape... Um, other aspects of your life, and so, and so, yes, I, I think you know, I'm not trying to to downplay the fact that there's a, there's a whole range of determinants, including social change mm-hmm. that occurs over over many years, um, but but that the built environment maintains um, some role in, in health. How good are the stats, Mel? I mean, how good is the longitudinal studies to examine, say, the rise of obesity and those sort of things? How far do they go back? Um, I'm. To be honest, I, I'm not entirely sure about um, longitudinal studies in general. I, I think in, in the built environment, we've done cross-sectional studies for a lot longer. So, um, you know, where you sort of look at one period of time and say, is this associated, is this urban feature associated with these health outcomes? Longitudinal studies are being increasingly um, done, and both in, in Australia and certainly internationally. And that's really pleasing because it's easy to see over time um, changes in the urban environment and how that changes behaviour. Um, so uh, it's it's a rising area. There needs to be more work. Uh, and the other area which um, uh, is increasingly being, being looked at in, in urban environment research is natural experiments where perhaps a uh, development's already planned or proposed and if you get research in there right from the beginning, mm-hmm. you can actually look at um, perhaps residents pre or post, mm-hmm. pre and post moving in or maybe look at residents as their neighbourhood changes and you can actually see how that changes health outcomes so that's that's also an interesting an interesting approach where you don't actually have to sort of um, mm. design something already it's it's going to it's going to happen anyway you know mm. the developers are going to do it anyway mm. or um and then you, research can just happen alongside it yeah there was some interesting research i think we came across previously with another interviewee which was um incorporating uh aged care into um i guess young care and trying to integrate the two age groups together have you heard anything about that? Uh, look, not not no. specifically, um, but we do know that 
uh, a lot of our neighbourhoods are not necessarily des- designed for people to age in place yeah. and for, for people to live, you know, across the lifespan. So there's a lot of talk about child-friendly cities mm. and increasingly age-friendly cities yeah. with the ageing population. Mm. So, um, you know, a lot of our inner-city areas are, are um, very livable and um, quite healthy in terms of a lot of the urban design characteristics, but are we providing housing choices for families? Mm. Very important. Are new apartments, if we're going to be living in higher densities, mm. are new apartments designed for families and, and are, are there opportunities for people to stay in the neighbourhood and age in place? Well, um, the funny thing is, I mean, in a, in a normal apartment building, you probably rarely get many three or four bedroom apartments. Usually it's predominantly one and two bedders and then, mm. you know, there might be a single three bedder and maybe a single four if you're lucky. But yes. It's usually because council has said, no, you need to have at least one. It's not that the developers want to do it. And I think there is evidence that there is an unmet demand there yeah. uh, for apartments that would cater to more sort of um, family size, you know, more family sized dwelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think there's a growing interest in in that area. And I think there's a growing community conversation about the quality of apartments to enable people to live in high densities but still have quality of life and, yeah. and have the amenity. Uh, and I think you know that's a growing conversation certainly here in Australia around how we do that better. Mm. Now, are we just getting too comfortable with our lives? I mean, we, we've got all the screen-based, we, we've got, we sit down a lot more, we don't do as much physical activity. Is, is it just this achievement of society to make us all so comfortable? That's got health uh, disbenefits. Fair? I th- I'd, I'd certainly say a lot of those behaviours are contributing to some of the chronic disease um, outcomes we're seeing. Um, and you know, are we are we getting lazy? It's it's hard to know whether um, you know some of these environmental determinants are actually sort of shaping our behaviours. We know that you know sixty percent of Australians are not being sufficiently active to um, you know benefit health, and so you know sedentary behaviour is very widespread. You know, so it's a it's a it's a very difficult and complex problem. But I would I would come back to the fact that uh, the the physical environment in which you live is is one of the factors. You know, if the if the environment is unpleasant, um, it's a, there's so much traffic on the street that kids can't play outside, um, or parents feel feel unsafe about about that. Um, and if inside all of a sudden becomes a much more attractive environment because you've got television and video games to play, I'm sure it's all in the mix in mm. terms of um, creating some of those more sedentary behaviours. Is that connected also, do you think, to mental wellbeing? I mean, there's been, I mean, depression and anxiety and those sorts of um, mental illnesses are really in the spotlight at the moment. Do you think there's a, a correlation with built form? Yeah, there's, there's some emerging evidence mm. around this. So uh, some of the clearest evidence is around um, certainly the, the health benefits of physical activity. Mm. So if neighbourhoods encourage physical activity, particularly as part of daily routines uh, and active transport, that uh, could increase physical activity and have flow-on effects to mental health. Some of the other, other links are around public open space. Mm. So we know that you know, contact with nature, contact with green space is really important for mental health and uh, you know also those opportunities to interact with neighbours and friends in the neighbourhood so having places to meet. Um, it's part of this convivial neighbourhood. Exactly to get. exactly you know that's really important for mental health to have that social connection in your neighbourhood um, and so both the sort of places to meet informally on mm. the street but maybe also places to meet formally as part of recreation um, and and those are some of the things we really need to make sure we're building into new communities mm. so that people can can interact and build that sense of community very early 
on and community groups as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah some of that, yeah, that some of the um, you know, the social infrastructure mm. to support those community groups from yeah. a planning perspective. The other thing um, is certainly an issue in in a lot of contexts, particularly in low and middle income countries, is the effects of noise in the urban environment on mental health. Um, so, if you live in a very noisy environment, particularly, uh, there's a lot of bit of evidence around. Traffic noise, um, airports, roads, um, heavily trafficked roads, that can cause sleep deprivation and aggravate, um, you know, aggravate or cause mental health problems. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mel, well-designed large public parks are a significant plus for, for, for citizens, uh, walkability and mental well-being. Given the obvious correlation, why don't we promote higher densities around parks, rivers and beaches? It's an interesting idea. Um, in, it's an interesting idea in in principle. I think that with a with a, a few um, things we'd have to be careful of there. That higher densities, particularly if that meant higher development in terms of height around these parks, you'd have to make sure that, that didn't detract from the natural environment and the natural beauty of these areas. The Central Park is gorgeous, though. <laughs> that's true. Um, some of the some of the development is very close there, um, so that's you know probably a good example. But I guess it comes back to that, what I was saying about the evidence around the attractiveness of public open space and the um, access to green space. Mm -hmm. So if development, if having higher density development around parks or beaches or whatever detracted from some of that, that natural beauty mm -hmm. and or um, actually sort of encroached on, on that public open space, that would be detrimental. So I think it would have to be done very sensitively. Mm -hmm. Somewhere like um, Central Park, it's a very large open space, so maybe it's about scale yeah. <laughs> as well. Um, so when you've got you know massive open space, there's no issue with having some high density nearby. But if it's a small river, and if you wanted to put towers on either side, that might be inappropriate. So I'd be reluctant to say uniformly that that's what we should do. Mm -hmm. I think it's about not so much having the high densities, but the evidence around access to public open space, local access to public mm -hmm. open space, is what's most important. So it's about creating more public open space, more high quality public open space, yeah. so that everyone who lives in an urban environment, everyone who lives in the city has that access. And we need we need the cafes near those places. We need a third place next to a park, you think? I think it's not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, so, so having those places um, not just sort of maybe isolated, particularly if they're smaller public places, uh, smaller public open spaces, to have them connected to, mm. to other um, nearby uh, attractions is also important. Can we unlock the schools in terms of the public park, you know, creating that... Shared space. Shared space, yeah. yeah. I think there's growing interest in that. Um, for a long time, you know, schools were closed at 3.30 and no one was allowed in. I think there's growing interest in sort of saying, well, yeah, this is a public open space that could be used out of school hours mm -hmm. by the community in general. I think it's a great idea um, and and one that, you know, probably is, is going to be used more, hopefully. Well, let's talk about public health indicators. Uh, contemporary new housing estates, are they taking into account the um, public health indicators? And if not, how do we address it? So I'd say um, whilst there is this growing research and knowledge base around what we need to do, and I'd say that we um, certainly, there's, there's more to discover and, and research um, could be strengthened in certain areas, I'd say we've got enough evidence to guide a lot of the planning decision-making um, that is happening now. Mm -hmm. And 
unfortunately, some of that evidence is not being consistently translated into practice. So we, we you know, I'm sure there's, there's, there's good examples happening all over the place. But just in general, um, I think that we could strengthen that translation of research into practice um, and indicators is one way of doing that. So if we develop strong indicators, and, and our team here at Melbourne University is involved in developing livability indicators, um, which are around health, um, that sort of evidence is going to be really useful. So the planners can say, you know, um, how are we performing compared to other areas? You know, if we do this, will that be better for health outcomes? Um, and that might help with some of that. What, what's the first priorities to uh, unlock this research? How do we get it out there into the field? Uh, I think you know that's a that's a there's, there's many answers to that question. Um, I'd say you know first maybe starting from the researcher perspective. Um, I'd say that a lot of research is not necessarily easy to translate into practice. So re research has to get better mm. at making the key recommendations easily accessible and perhaps not just publishing in peer-reviewed academic journals, which no one reads, mm. um, but actually you know, getting the message out there to those who can actually use it. I'd say that's probably the first step. I'd say also we need to get better at that, that process of translation. So working with knowledge brokers, mm. um, whether they're a researcher or a practitioner who can actually sort of maybe be in both camps and sort of act as a knowledge a knowledge broker. There's also ideas around training and professional development for both people working in health, but, but certainly planners, to put that as part of the curriculum um, mm. and certainly professional development once people are out working, to just make this interdisciplinary practice much more, um, much more the norm. Um, and I think also creating the economic case, so that you know that the, the economic case for some of these um, health benefits in the community could be really important. So research could be stronger there. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a whole there's a whole range of things we could do to make sure that we're translating that key evidence uh, and indicators into the, the the outcomes on the ground. One of the things that I think when when we talk about public health and planning, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that you're talking about fast food and unhealthy yep. eating. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to have a quick chat about um, the approaches taken to that. There's some practitioners, I guess, in our field that are wanting to limit the number of um, number of fast food outlets in a particular suburb, um, similar to what's been done with gambling or sorry, gaming machines and liquor licensing. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, we do know that uh, from the research that the, the, um, the food options available in your neighbourhood do actually determine, in part, diets. Mm -hmm. So the strongest evidence is around access to healthy food outlets, such as a supermarket, um, which is a reliable source of healthy food in the community. Having that nearby access can improve diets. There's less strong evidence around fast food nearby mm -hmm. and people being encouraged to eat it. But what we do know is that the, the density, the relative density of these of these different options is important. So um, having relative to fresh food, less fast food mm. and less unhealthy food is important for, you know, people's food choices. We also know that around the, uh, the environment immediately around a school and the food options available there as well as inside a school certainly partly determine um, children's diets. Yeah. So... My answer to your question would be, I think it's actually not a bad idea mm. to try and limit the density of fast food outlets in, in particular areas. Because it really comes down to convenience at the end of the day, doesn't it? It does. That brings up to the health impact assessment concept. Uh, we'll just quickly go back to the um, governance and policy making processes, just because I know, Mel, that's one of the things that you um, do a lot of work in. Yes. Um, yeah. What has been your experience in trying to 
I guess, translate all of this evidence into planning process and governance? Yeah, so um, a lot of my work is around the fact that um, creating the sorts of environments we've been talking about today, it's not just planning departments um, and it's not just you know, local government planners that are involved in this. There's a whole range of different sectors um, that, that need to be involved in, in making sure that we've got schools, transport, um, hospitals, you know, healthcare of all kinds, public open space, uh, shops and services. So this involves many sectors across uh, state government, local government, and all, all, in fact, all levels of government. So what we require is this concept of integrated planning. Mm-hmm. So we need all of these sectors to work together in a collaborative fashion to create those communities on the ground that actually do have all of the infrastructure and services that they need. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's about those collaboration and partnerships between and across levels of government mm-hmm. and also the private and community sectors, which have a, you know, a big role mm-hmm. in, in the shaping of the urban environment. Um, and I'd say I'd say it's also it's also about you know making sure that the policies and the plans that we're producing are actually consistent across those sectors, and also that they are supporting health outcomes. So that we don't have one plan over here that's great, but then the transport department doesn't support a local public transport option. Yeah. So that you know there's sort of like a, a contradiction between the sectors there. So it's so about creating that consistency, and then I'd probably say also really. Another important thing is the involvement of the community in planning. Mm-hmm. So that we get the community values, perspectives and viewpoints actually reflected yeah. reflected in the policies that we and the plans that we see, um, which actually helps with being, them being implemented as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, planners and policymakers are more likely to go with what the community consensus is. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, there's, a whole, there's a whole range of um, approaches. I think also here in Australia we have a, a history of um, certainly at the metropolitan level, um, quite short-term, quite short-term thinking, and we need to think much longer term um, across political cycles, so that we don't have a plan that then doesn't get properly implemented mm. and then thrown out with the change of government. That we actually have that consistent long-term strategy over time, mm. so we can work consistently towards the sort of city collectively that does support health outcomes. So, so that takes us to the health impact assessment uh, concept. Uh, should they be done more frequently? How can they be applied? So health impact assessment just in general is a a great idea. So it's basically often in the form of a checklist um, where uh, it's a a method of assessing the potential or current health impacts of a development, um, a plan or or a policy. And this allows, by doing health impact assessment, it allows decision makers to um, consider Mm. the potential health impacts of... um, proposed plans. And probably prompts things that they haven't thought about. Exactly. And Mm. with the idea of amending to make plans and policies better. So I guess it's a way of um, uh, maybe preventing some unintended negative consequences because you pick them up early through a health impact assessment. Um, And also, as I say, just making health a bit more at the forefront of decision making Mm. rather than sort of like an afterthought. Potentially even after you've built the, yeah. <laughs> built the thing, so um, so I think it, I think it, it has a, a real a real role. Health impact assessment is used increasingly internationally, and there's a growing interest in it. In Australia, it's certainly not routine and not conducted very commonly. And I think we could actually certainly strengthen in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure whether the best mechanism is to actually 
make it mandatory for certain types of development um, through the planning legislation um, or in fact whether it should just be a much more discretionary process I would suggest that um, something more mandatory would, would be used more <laughs> um, because because you know as soon as things are left up to um, practitioners who are very busy uh, and you know can't got to prioritise yeah. all sorts of different conflicting interests. Because um, they're often teamed up with um, environmental impact assessments, which, you know, for the most part are really only done for um, projects of national significance a lot yes. of the time. Yes. So I wonder whether it um, gets pulled away from the EIAs and made into its own process for, you know, potentially just starting off on the bigger projects and then moving down into the more local and policy um Assessments. Yeah, that yeah. that sounds like a good idea, and I think um, you know environmental health, environmental impact assessment. Sorry, that has a much longer history, mm. um, and we've been sort of transitioned in social impact assessment has been tacked on to environmental impact assessment. Health impact assessment is sort of maybe a bit of a newer kid on the block, mm. but it needs to be done more routinely to make sure that health's in the mix there with environment and social considerations when mm. when making decisions. Yeah. Mel, uh, just finishing up, what are you currently reading, watching or listening to uh, that inspires you? Well, um, Apart from goodness. playing the violin. <laughs> yes, I do play the violin. I'm not sure if that, I'd say that's inspirational though. Very um, inspirational. <laughs> uh, I, I read a, a, a large amount of sort of literature on planning and health and I'd say in general, you know, reading my colleagues' works from, you know, Australia and internationally, is reasonably inspiring for, for my research because I think it, there's a, it grows, the, it makes a compelling case for yeah. the fact that we actually need to do something to improve urban environments, um, not just in Australia and in, in, um, in developed high-income countries, but, but in other contexts, in those low- to middle-income countries as well. But um, at the moment, I'm also reading a, a report um, brought out quite recently by the Lancet Journal, um, which talks about um, basically the fact that um, health and climate change um, are very closely linked and that there's many opportunities to create co-benefits through action on climate change for health. And uh, the great thing about that report is the urban environment features um, and, and there's a lot of discussion around those co-benefits that could be realised through action on climate change, um, which would have co-benefits for health, but also would create you know, uh, more pleasant urban environments. Well, Melanie, thank you very much for a, a very interesting uh, interview. Uh, you've uh, let us know what great responsibilities we have uh, in the field of public health, and I'm sure it's of interest to Jess, who's doing a Master's in Public Health. Uh, our listeners can go to www.planningexchange.org for further details of this interview and others coming. Thank you. Thank you. Deep in your love